Hi, this is Against Everyone with Connor Habib. I am so excited to have my good friend Dave Leo Pepe from the band Gang of Views back on the show. Dave hasn't been on the show since episode 31, and this is episode 215, so we've come a long way, both of us, since then, uh, in what we've been up to. All good art has a spiritual component, but how? I mean, sometimes it's obvious, of course. So, for example, a book or a film will have spiritual content. But what about art that isn't apparently spiritual, but has deep spiritual meaning and resonance? I wanted to talk about how spirit finds unlikely locales. So, in rock music, for instance... Dave's latest album with Gang of Use, Angel in Real Time, um, which is one of the most celebrated albums of 2022, is a beautiful meditation on death and discovery. Um, it has minimalist composition structures, excessive layering. Uh, it sounds like those two things would contradict each other, but they don't. As you probably know, if you have listened to the band or you're a fan, uh, the album is about the death of Dave's father. So it is, in a lot of ways, a communication with the dead. So the album has this sentiment of interaction with a spiritual realm, the realm of the dead. But being able to write an album like that, a beautiful one, <laughs> one that actually holds its integrity throughout, means going through a spiritual development process or struggle. As a musician, as a guy, I wanted to try and find God or find whatever version of him made sense to me in the music. You know that story in the, um, the Old Testament about Jacob wrestling with the angel? If I looked at my, not only my creative life, but my life in general, Jacob wrestling with the angel, this, this furious, this struggle for um, inheritance against um, an ancient perennial being sparsely superior in muscularity and fighting ability, right? And Jacob's wrestling, wrestling, wrestling with his cunt. And he's like, I'm not going to let you go until you give me what you owed me. And then, you know, God touches his fucking his hip and he walks with a limp for the rest of his life. For me, that's where I'm at. This way the spiritual world shows you love is by getting you to do what you're meant to do, to do the task that's in your destiny related to your karma. And that is yeah. love, but it often feels like pain. And it often even comes as something that can be disabling, you know, in a certain way. And so when someone's touched by that, you know, presence and then walks with a limp, you know, I'm thinking your version of that really is like you and I sitting at your table and in, in London and 
you just being like, I cannot write this fucking album and I don't know what I'm going to do. And you went through that for a long time. And that was actually the love of the spiritual world. And it doesn't feel like that when you're in it because it's so painful, but that the, the demand is stay with it. This is a wide-ranging episode. We talk about angels, mythology, representation, politics and music, dead, and more. I'm so happy to share it with you. And if you're unfamiliar with Dave's music, there's a Spotify playlist of all my favorite Gang of Youth songs in the show notes, which are over at patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. Um, listen, I just want to say advertisements are no fun, so I don't do them. Uh, with this show. And that means that the show relies entirely on Patreon patrons. That's how the show exists. There's no sponsors. There's no funding from other agencies or anything like that. It's just you all out there, the listeners. Um, so please do support the show. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib. Contribute at whatever amount you want, whether it's three euro or three dollars a month, or you can make an annual one time contribution. I've been seeing a lot more people doing that because they want to just kind of get it out of the way and not think about it, um, or just make a one time contribution. And that's great. That's a great way to do it. Patreon.com forward slash Connor Abib. Thanks for keeping the show completely ad free and sponsor free. I don't want to be hawking things that I do not care about um, to you all because that's dishonest. It's out of the integrity of the show, which I think is always trying to reach for deeper truths and express, you know, significant ideas. Um, All right. So listen, that's all. (laughs) I am so excited to share this episode uh, with Gang of Youth frontman Dave Leopepe. Here we go. everybody. It's Against Everyone with Connor Habib. Welcome back, Dave Leopepe. It's been years since you've been on the show, actually. Hi. It's been, it's been years since we've spoken, man. Here you go. <laughs> been uh, like when I broke your camera. Yeah, the last time Dave was on the show, for people that um, didn't catch that one, uh, it was back when I did video primarily and then posted an audio, which was a dumb idea. I just thought that everybody wanted to see me because... They thought I was hot or something like that. And then uh, <laughs> Dave broke my camera um, yeah. and apologized to me profusely for like, it was like a few days. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever felt worse about anything in my life. <laughs> Straight up. That's the fucking worst I've ever felt about someone. Actually, so. like seven Gang of Youth songs are actually about that moment. <laughs> Whenever he and says like, he's he a piece said, of shit in his song. You said something um, like to me that was like pretty like stirring it was like the more you apologize the more i feel i have to comfort you and and i can't feel bad that my camera's broken and i was like oh fuck and i was like like, oh sorry about that (laughs) that's the kind of friend i am (laughs) um so yeah i mean look the the reason why i'm saying it's been a long time is you know obviously you and i speak like almost every day but like i think or like every few days at least we text each other but i think like um i don't really have 
conversations with you that are about the kinds of things that people want to ask you questions about. And so I, I was like, all right, well, how do I approach this? Because right, the last time I didn't know you as well. So I asked you a lot more kind of interviewee questions. And I found myself a little bit at a loss this time trying to figure out what to talk with you about. But you I know knew me so well at this point. Yeah. Like I just knew it'd be boring no matter what. No, I, <laughs> but no, I, but no, it was more like I was thinking about this episode I did with this great writer, Brian Washington. Um, and something I asked him about because novelist is like, you know, every single interview that's done with him, the people are like, what's your writing process like? And I thought about how, you know, people tend to ask certain kinds of artists and creators the same kinds of questions because they can't figure out what it is to talk about with them. And when I was thinking about this in reference to you and just sort of going through recent interviews, it's all the same thing. And I don't mean this as a diss to all those interviews. There is interesting stuff and stories in some of those interviews, but it's always like, how did this event in your life form, you know, inform the creation of this song? And I think I want to start there, which is this like thing about why people don't actually know how to ask musicians questions. I mean, I've had a lot of musicians on the show and we've talked about completely different things. When Stephen Malcolmus was on the show, we talked about Gilles Deleuze most, like for most of the episode. <laughs> so, you know, and he like when, an what's that? I think Stephen Malcolmus tucking into a copy of anti Oedipus while fucking smoking hookah. Yeah. <laughs> That. Yeah, man. that's like a real right like that's, <laughs> that's what, <laughs> what a fucking sick kind of <laughs> but there is like yeah i mean one we'll just start off with the kind of restriction you must feel when you're asked those questions because it's probably trying to create direct links all the time that might not be yeah. apparent or there for you. So let's start there. Uh, is there a, a restricting feeling to constantly trying to link up biography to every piece of art you put out? Yeah, I think a lot of that's my fault because I um, have only ever written things that were extremely autobiographical. Um, mainly because in my twenties, I always thought that, that was the only way I could make anything compelling. Um, and there's a, most most of what I've made has been made out of necessity and fear. Necessity because I needed to meet a deadline and generate some income for myself, and fear because I was afraid that no matter what I said, unless it was twins with sadness or tins with fucking darkness or the horrible things that had happened to me, no one would give a fuck. And so much of that has informed what I'd done in my 20s and a lot of that was really good and a lot of it was really a lot of it, a lot of what I've done is really fucking mediocre and I'm not just saying that to be winning a lot of what I've done I look at with a bit of shame you know a bit of like guilt that fuck I, I could have made that better but instead I caved into caring about whether or not people would find me the, the subject of all this shit interesting and the reason why the last album sort of broke with that is because I, I didn't have to be the subject of it all the time. It was still about me and my life, but I was talking about my dad. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that, I think what you said about people trying to constantly make links to um, to the biographical you, like in, in relation to the work, I think that's, that's the only way that we're taught to digest and ingest 
artistic information. Mm. You know, the creative has always been viewed as like a, a window to a human being as an individual and and um, maybe that's just a trend of 21st century contemporary music writing or film writing, but we're always trying to look at how it reflects on the individual who made it. And I feel like sometimes we're looking less about how art reflects on us as a, collectively, us as humanity. Um, and maybe that's like a result of fucking, you know, an insular kind of capitalism that's obviously infected art, you know, that it becomes inherently more about the individual and the individual's story. Um, or whether, you know, I don't know what, why, but, yeah, I think, I think people, people want to like, they want to figure out for themselves why they find the art compelling. And I think the first port of call is, you know, what trauma did you go through to write this shit? You know? And I think for me, I, I haven't made it easy myself because that's all I've written about. You know? <laughs> well, I mean, okay. So I have a few questions there. I mean, one is, I don't really like this term, but when people talk about parasocial relationships, you know, it used to be really that there was a sense of distance between yourself and especially a front man of a band or, you know, maybe an author or something that you liked, there was always a sense of distance that, you know, the downside of that was that it sort of amplified a kind of untouchability of that person and it elevated them in a way. But the the upside of it was that that, that distance was actually true and <laughs> that distance was real yeah. whereas the closeness that people experience now is what's false and so i think when you're you know talking about people finding their way into music by thinking about what is it that must be going on with with dave's personality i mean it, it is true that you, you know some of your songs are so specific that they that people find themselves needing to relate to it as your story and then thinking that they know you. I mean, people, uh, you know, my podcast is incredibly personal in a lot of ways, but then, you know, um, that people would think that they know my privacy, uh, my real privacy, not secrecy, but my actual real privacy in my inner life is not, is not true. And, uh, but I, th- I don't know. I mean, I feel like my audience has a pretty healthy relationship to that. So that's one thing I just want to say. But then as a question, I wanted to ask you about your, you know, the stuff that you're ashamed of when you say that, or you feel it's mediocre. Give me an example. Uh, Achilles Come Down is something I feel a lot of great shame about. And ironically, it's our biggest song. I think it was a song that like the ideas behind it and like the, I guess the metaphorical and fit and, and, and um, the metaphorical heart of it is quite an interesting concept, you know. Um, how does how does how do we communicate with the self when we're in um, moments of total manic abandon? Yeah, you know I mean, like, what does it look yeah. like when we're when we're when we're dangling off on the precipice of mortality? You know, whether or not you want to kill yourself or fucking any of that. What what does that narrative look like in real time? And how do you relate it to? Great Greek tragic heroes. How do you relate it to Sisyphus? Obviously, the myth of Sisyphus has been read in the background. Um, how do you uh, by by Camus? How do you relate it to you know um, the Iliad? You know things that things that, you know symbols of great Greek tragedy. And then, unfortunately, um, with that song, I think it's not really contained or um, restrained very well. So the way that it kind of meanders off into the distance with this very very complex 
narrative, but also musically and production-wise, I, I felt like, you know, I, I should have done a better job in terms of an edit. Um, and mm. I think a lot of people um, who, who find a lot of value in that song, they're finding value for the right reasons because obviously it's about, you know, transcending um, death, trying to transcend the desire for death, um, you know, trying to embrace life and this in this Nietzschean sort of thing. But also um, they've done it thinking that I'm referencing uh, the song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. Which I've never fucking read that book. Um, <laughs> a lot of people ask me, you know, I'm a courts read it. Um, that's my wife for anyone listening. Uh, we have a copy of it, but I've never read it. So I think, I think for me, like, Maybe it's about the the songs that I've written that have been misinterpreted in terms of their inspiration or mm. or their um you know and I think for me my biggest my biggest being misunderstood or being misinterpreted and um, perhaps that's why I've always been so succinctly personal about the art because you can't possibly for me in my brain obviously you can but for me in my brain people couldn't possibly misinterpret me right if i'm being this fucking blunt and honest about what i'm going through or what i've done or where i've been and that's um that's kind of probably why i feel like some pieces of work are abject failures you know where i feel like i'm being misunderstood um, so would you say then though that that means that the successful songs to you are the ones that people understand the most because that seems also sort of like a like a weird metric to me i mean i'm not, I'm not telling you it's a bad yeah. metric but it's it sounds strange to me well i think people just gravitated towards that song because they found it on tiktok and i do appreciate that i think that's pretty cool like and i'm not saying that people loving that song is bad like i'm glad they do just for me i wish i could have made it better for them does that make sense yeah. um, but i think i don't think a song's popularity indicates anything because my favorite songs and the ones that i feel truly the uh, most representative of what i was trying to say at that point in my life no one gives a fuck about right yeah so you're so you're you're talking about honoring honoring what's looking to come through in the song like honoring it with a kind of articulation and attentiveness that you feel like you've given it its best presence so whether because i i i can imagine you writing a song that you absolutely love that people misunderstand and still feeling like yeah but that's a good fucking song right yes absolutely like um for me a a good example would be um two good examples off the top of my head the um shen boxer off the first album our first record fucking sucks it's it's (laughs) It's honestly like i find it really difficult to explain to people because they're like oh you're just being self-effacing and then obviously you know me, you know me very well, you probably know me better than most people. I It's not that I'm self-effacing, I'm a perfectionist and I find it really fucking difficult to allow things, to let go of things. And we had a conversation where you're like, you should just be okay with letting things go and letting the world decide or letting mm. people hear it. Um, but the first album just fucking sucks, but there's there's three tracks on that that are really, really profound to me. And Shamboxer, um, Shamboxer for me is, is, is one of them. It's... I, I find a lot of a lot of the lyrics and a lot of the general propulsive movement of that song to be really inspired and really really nostalgic for me, but also I, I still get emotional hearing that one because it speaks to a truth that I was living at that time in my life that was really really powerful and it's still really powerful, even though it's about a different different thing, a different person. Those sentiments that I had as a twenty two year old, twenty one year old. Are, are fucking powerful to me still 10 years on as a 31 year old um 
But then, you know, when cunts fucking compare it to like, oh, it just sounds like the national, like, or, you know, <laughs> that's when it becomes a bit like, ah, oh, well, fuck, did, did I make the wrong call? Um, so that's one song that I would say, like, I'm desperately proud of, but very, very few people give a shit about. And maybe there's a, maybe there's like a weird secret poetry between me and whoever loves that song now, uh, like a love language that exists because they, they truly hear something that I hear in that, that track. Another one I love is Keep Me in the Open um, off the second album. Um, just because I think lyrically it, it works. Um, but, you know, I wouldn't say it's anywhere near our, our popular song, the most popular song, but it's definitely one that has a cult thing around it in terms of Gang Abuse fandom. And I think there's some really beautiful – there's no guitar on it, which that's the thing I love the most about it. It was sort of looking into the future of what we would become, you know. Um, and it's a simple loop and it's um, – and it's bright and sunny in some parts and it's shady and miserable in other parts and there's something vaguely philosophical about it. it it's sort of it's talking about a specific person in a specific time but mm. doesn't necessarily need to relate to a lover. There's a line about um, uh, get a load of the kid in the gangrene T-shirt, the one with, uh, you know, this this idea that I'm referring to just, just really humdrum things in my life that are somehow reminiscent of the situation I was in. I do like the... The kind of everyday sort of poetry, like sort of like fucking what's that guy's name, um, Raymond Carver, you know, like sort of has this, you know, the the poetry of everyday thing that I really love about it, and I still really love about it. Yeah, I mean, I think when <clears throat> you make something that can grow with you, you know, and you don't outgrow it, but it actually continues to make something transparent to you about yourself or about your thinking about who you are. I think that rather than just who you were, I think that that's really profound. I mean, that's, that's a hard thing to do is to create something that, you know, grows with you and that follows you through time. And that, I mean, yeah, that's really rare. And of course then, you know, I mean, it's not, (laughs) it's not going to be the same songs for you as it is for your audience because your audience you know, your audiences are changing. Although, I mean, I I do think there's like, I'm sure you've talked about this before elsewhere, but you know, a lot of people I've had on the show that are musicians are people that I listened to when I was younger and I still listen to now. And their music has just continued to go with me. But then you sit down and you're like, do I really, this isn't about anybody that's been on the show, but you ask yourself sometimes with some of those bands, like, do I really actually like this? Or has this actually just generated a kind of rhythm that attaches or a kind of, you know, repeating vibe that attaches to a sort of aspect of my emotional self. that, Like like an old painting on the wall in the the house. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not nostalgia because it's not just about evoking a feeling of the past. It's something that is really present, but it's hard to know if you actually even like it, which is such a strange thing. And, you know, if you've ever like done this where you're listening to a band and like you've listened to them your whole life and then you play it for someone else and that person's like, man, that guy really Fucking can't real. sing or whatever. You're like, what? He's such a great that'll, singer. You know, that'll be, that'll be us for a lot of people. <laughs> I think, I think, well, the, I think we, we referenced this something, you know, look, we referenced earlier in the, like how personal it all is and how yeah. it's always represented who I was at the time. And he said something interesting. The ones that I'm most proud of speak to a deeper spiritual truth about who I believe to myself to be throughout time and who I believe myself to be at my core, not just who I am in any given context, not who I was in 2012. 
mm. or 2013, you know. Um, and I think the ones, the songs that really speak to that truth or whatever are, are the hardest ones for me to even write because I'm I'm really afraid of being hated and I'm really afraid of like, you know, the person that I am or at least believe myself to be not being accepted just in general, even in my own personal life. And so uh, allowing myself this this weird um this weird horror horrific privilege of sharing that with the world you know that's 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 even more difficult to comprehend and it, it, you know i think i make music because i just wanted to be loved i just wanted to be cared for and and respected and liked in a way that i never felt like i was growing up and yeah i think the songs that mean the most to me are the ones that have that longing in them and maybe and maybe maybe Achilles come come down becoming popular, it's me being loved or cared about in a way that I resent or yeah. a way that doesn't, you know, that way that I feel like I don't deserve or something like that. I think that's so when so when I talk about Shamboxa or keeping in the open, it's all about just being accepted. Do you know what I mean? Those songs are really fundamentally about being loved well and being treated well and being accepted and, and I think maybe that's you know, and sorry, just in reference to like the songs that you don't even know if you really, really like. I've had that with a few artists that I've gone back and listened to recently and then just sort of being like, oh, fuck, have I just imagined this? Like, did I only like this because some fucking critic said that it was sick? Mm. And then I've gone back and listened to shit that was panned that I was embarrassed about listening to, like fucking, I don't want to name names, but like, oh, you know, I've gone back and listened to shit that people told me was bad and a lot of it's so fucking brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> I've had that as well. Time, you're right. Yeah, you know, ahead of its time. Like, I mean, I'm gonna fucking say, like, people who hate Creed, fuck them. Like, fucking, that's it. That man can fucking <laughs> sing. Me, Kevin, Ga- Kevin Gates, the rapper, likes it. But I keep thinking about like, like the the idea that 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 we leave behind, and me, me as well. I've left behind so much important and lovely things, lovely art, because you know, I don't know. And now, now at 31, I'm realizing that a lot of it's lived with me and it's stood the test of time and some of it's really good. And some of the stuff I thought was really good is fucking shit. Yeah, because, yeah, like so much of it is about the new encounter where when something is new and you feel that rush of it, it gives you, it, it can really beguile you in a way that doesn't let you see it for what it is. I'm not devaluing that experience. Novelty is great, but it's not the same as having a real capacity to connect to the thing that's before you. And unfortunately, I mean, so much in the world works on novelty and that's a, it's not just a capitalism thing. I mean, there's a lot of other reasons for, for that. I I think people could reach for, oh, it's capitalism like really easily, but there there's, there's a way in which we diminish our ability to, deep in our capacity for appreciation. Cause I, I was just thinking before we were talking about it, like some people might be longtime gang of views fans and might not actually really be fans who are connecting with it anymore. They're connecting with the kind of uh, developmental uh, process that gang of views started in them. Whereas someone yeah. might be completely new to your band and they, they might be the real fan in a way, like the real one that, is actually sort of integrating 
into and with the kind of music that you're making. Cause it's not, it's yeah, it's such a weird thing. Music and time is such a bizarre thing. You know that, um, what's the, it's Anthony Powell. Do you know that series of novels? Um, uh, 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 yeah, well, he just like wrote all, <laughs> he's like a sort of unknown Proust, like kind of figure. And, uh, a lot of it's, I think touches on some of this, but I, I, I think I haven't read it either. So I don't mean to sound smarter than I am. I just know about it, but it's making me want to read it now because I was thinking about, you know, obviously we talk about time in music and pauses and rhythm and all that kind of stuff, but like music in the flow of time also has its own strange effects, you know? Even, even on some, like, this is a really, really good point. You've actually fucking hit nail on the head and there's this weird, even even on a, on a totally biological level, music hits you different when you're older. Yeah. Like the way the way that I hear things now is completely different to how I heard it as a 15 year old. So there are sounds that I find unbearable now that I thought were fantastic as a kid, and then vice versa. Like on a on a on a biological level, your hearing changes. You know? The way that you interpret sound as a as a body as a bit of flesh, it changes over time. You know, your hearing gets worse. You know, you become. Like I, I, I'm more interested in 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 soundscape and mood now than I ever was as a kid because mm. like my, my my life has changed significantly and it allows more space for that. Whereas when I was fucking 21 years old, all I wanted was shit that was fucking immediate and melodic and and so much about how we interpret sound just changes on you know it, like never mind the spiritual or, or the psychological like you know you're talking about the relationship with time like it's just. I think a lot about the passage of time when it comes to music and I, I've gone back and I've listened to Go Father and Lightness and I always talk about how much I fucking hate that album. But there are moments where I listen to some of the songs and I'm just like kind of floored by how I still connect to these things mm. um, part of me and, and, and the some that came out of me, lyrically at least. You know, and and but time has changed my relationship because I released a lot of that music and I fucking hated it and now I'm going back. And it's not nostalgia. I'm starting to hear things that were actually good. In places I did before, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry if that's a bit of a digression, but no, 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 no. It's it's important, I think, in this discussion because I think, like, I was thinking about how, you know, when I was basically like, I would say 16 to like 29 or 30, probably even a little older. But there's this like long period of time in my life where I really wanted atonal, discordant, like really grating music. Like, like Schoenberg uh, and shit. Well, well no, <laughs> I wish I had gone there, but no, I'm talking about like <laughs> circus, circus lupus or like these like oh, really right. loud, but like bands, you know, post-punk bands that were not just, um, that it, it's not just that they were post-punk or like had a kind of mathy aspect to some, but like that actually would kind of get on your nerves. Like that would bother people because that's what I wanted. That's how I felt. I should be in the world was to sort of go out. And, and so that music was such fuel for me, but now in time (laughs) with music, like music isn't fuel for me anymore. It doesn't really do that. I mean, honestly, the music I listen to the most is music. I listen to when I am reading, like I'll set, I'll set up, you know, the room in my house and just play like, you know, if I, I was reading, um, Death in the Family by James Aggie, which is one of the fucking greatest novels I've ever read. You'll have to read it. But I, it, you know, this is an old American. Is that the guy? Is that um, the, um, was that Charles Lawton movie? Um, 
Yeah, he he wrote Night of the Hunter. Night of the Hunter, yeah, without the Bishop, Bishop, yeah. yeah. But he, but he, um, yeah, and it, it became like two different movies. But like, I, so I played like music. It takes place in Tennessee, so I play like music from Tennessee from the nineteen twenties, like yeah. while I'm listening to it to just sort of evoke what was going on in the time or the place or whatever. That's most. It, it's not that I don't listen to other music, but if I'm going to think about just hours logged of like music, it just has a completely different function now than it did when I was a kid where I was like really assembling my political views, my presence in the world, like giving everything an emotive touch tone, you know, in my life. And so of course it's just going to completely change. Um, and I think this, it's one of the things, sorry, just want to say one of the, one of the weird things uh, is like, you're listen. you listen to Steve Reich so much. And I w- was just thinking today, cause I, I knew I was going to bring him up. Like, when did I really start listening to Steve Reich? And it was right around when I was like 28, 29, 30, 31. Terry Riley's coming in there as well. And Kronos Quartet and all these things that I was like, fuck, Dave's actually getting into that. Yeah, I mean, you've been into it for a while, but Dave's like, really, it's like a big presence in his life at the same time it was for me, which I found really funny the way certain musicians and certain sounds will come to nourish us at different times in our life. Like these sort of helper spirits, you know, I, I, I'm so glad you you brought him up. I think it's one of those things where like, it's, it's this, this eternal recurrence with, with the minimalist guys. So my first exposure to Steve Reich was, um, as a, as probably a 13 or 14 year old. And, um, you get into like the stuff you talk about grading music. Like there's so much about the repetition of music for 18 musicians or electric, uh, not even electric counterpoint. Um, um, that becomes really, you know, it feels rebellious listening to it because other cunts aren't listening to the shit. You know, like no one's sitting, <laughs> no, like no, like no, what 15 year olds bragging about listening to fucking these like these dinosaur like minimalist composers and shit. <laughs> um, and then in every album cycle, the Big Four and John Luther Adams and John Adams and um, Michael Nyman and people like that, they come around every album because they they serve this weird meditative purpose in my life. Like you were saying, you chuck on music from the 1920s Tennessee because you want to you want to be absorbed in this time. You want to be uh, like bathed in it. And I bathe myself in these people because they they're innovative, they are melodic, and they they are relevant to the psychological. I guess the psychic. I'll say psychic, not psychological. They're relative. They're they're relevant to the psychic mood that I'm in when I'm writing a record or when I'm going through stuff. Um, mm. And at 28, 29, 28, yeah, 27, 28, 29, I decided instead of just loosely referencing Philip Glass like I did on Go Father and Lightness, there's basically a piece called The Real, which is a rip off of his um, closing movement in uh, Machine or Life in Four Chapters, Paul mm. Schrader's greatest film. Um, but I wanted to just make sure that the references were not just references. They were living and breathing documents mm. in the music. And they became, Steve Reich especially, but Philip Glass obviously became more important to me the last three, four years than in my entire life beforehand. Mm. And it just, it just fucking, Electric Counterpoint was a big one as well. And also like um, his, um, Shavidi Lenegdi um, Hashem, which is um, mm-hmm. uh, which means I place the eternal before me. It's a, it's a spirit, Jewish spiritual music that he did um, with the LA um, 
I think it was the, I can't remember who it was, but um, those pieces of music became more and more relevant because I was moving to this period where like, I was trying to connect with the dead. Do you know what I mean? I was trying to, I don't know, I was trying to like figure out a way to talk to my father. I remember you told me once, like, just have you ever tried talking to your dad? And then I did. And I was just trying to just talk to him, mm-hmm. you know, see what happened. And a lot of this music became less about background noise for me or less about solidifying a place in time and a mood to write music and about literally about reaching up into the fucking heavens to find mm-hmm. where my father was or to find this stuff where it existed. And I do think that a lot of these composers are, are flirting with the spiritual here. Yeah. Um, and that's I, I think that's why they became more and more relevant, especially the last album I did. Yeah, you know I mean, like it was less window dressing, less look at me, look at all the fucking cool cunts I listen to. Totally, and more about like you know, this is this is integral to the way I I see the world and see life and death. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean it is. It, it's such a different, uh, and maybe this doesn't echo your experience at all, but like, it just feels like the first two albums, which I like. I mean, I obviously really like them. It's how I met you is your music that's not even on those that first album um (laughs) but it's like you know it sounds like you're trying to write songs and that's fine writing trying to write songs is great but uh, you know on angel in real time it's you're you know the the it's like you're trying to have a relationship with the song which is somehow maybe that's not the best way to articulate it but it's just a completely different move it feels like and I think you always wrestled with spiritual questions and spiritual questions in music, at least in lyrics. But that, first of all, has penetrated into the rest of the music, not just the lyrics um, on Angel in Real Time. And it seems to, and because you're having this communicative uh, moment with the dead on, moments with the dead on this album, you know, it's like, there is a real presence of spirit in so many different ways. So one, I want to just ask you where you're at with that. Um, personally, even though now we're doing the biography informs the album kind of thing, but I do, I do want to, I do want to ask you that, but um, also I want to know how that, how that feels different. Like what the experience of that kind of music emerging is and just to add one last point to that like you know i was in the studio with you when you were recording early songs on that album and it just felt like a different presence had alighted on the room when you were working even though i think you threw away all the versions that i was present for but it it did feel like something else was in the room there and i i don't necessarily mean that as you know there was a dead person in the room, although I'm sure that's true too. There's dead people in every room, but that you had really evoked something. You know that story in the um, the Old Testament about Jacob wrestling with the angel. Yes. Yeah. Um, if I looked at my not only my creative life but my life in general, I always think about that story as being the one that's most profoundly analogous or whatever my parents named me after king david but um, i i've never really found myself to be like him outside of the fucking you know the songs thing and the name um 
Jagger wrestling with the angel. This this furious, this furious wrestle. This this um, this struggle for um, inheritance against um, an ancient perennial being, sparsely superior in muscularity and fighting ability. Right, and Jacob's wrestling, wrestling, wrestling with his cunt. And he's like, I'm not going to let you go until you give me what you owed me. And then fucking, or give him, you know, and then, you know, God touches his fucking, his hip and he walks with a limp for the rest of his life. And for me, that's where I'm at with, with all that stuff. It's like, you know, once, like I flirted with the spiritual and I wrestled with God, so to speak, in my own personal life and finding my family and all the stuff that's really material. But in terms of a songwriter, I, I, I just wanted to, as a musician, as a guy, as a bloke who fucking makes music, I wanted to try and find God or find whatever version of him made sense to me in the music using whatever transcendent, transcendental tones or chords or whatever I could. Um, so that I, I guess it's kind of a weird thing, but, to say, but that's kind of where I'm at. The way that I look at music is about mm-hmm. I'm wrestling with God. It's a struggle and um, and an intimate thing where I'm. I, I just want to f- hear and feel the thing that that stays with me. You know, that fills me with emotion, that fills me with pride, that makes me a little bit scared to put it out in the world. And sometimes those things are really bright and light and joyous. Mm-hmm. And as I get older, they're often dark and mysterious and shadowy because, you know. Um, there's darkness in me, and there's darkness in everyone, and, and a lot of a lot of the creative thing for me is about peering into that darkness and trying to trying to gather together things that are emotive and evocative and and cool, you know, that, that feel really good. Um, yeah, so I guess that's where I'm at it. I just I, I think for me the spiritual elements are the most important. I need to feel like there's a sense of that in it and yeah so i guess that's the, the by that bible story um is what i don't know why it fucking just makes sense to me i just love that idea that that this can't walk with a limp for the rest of his life from that one moment and i, I feel like I, yeah. I as a musician or as an artist i want to walk with the same limp of being touched by that yeah. that the ecstatic transcendence of making music that feels connected to somewhere mm-hmm. else yeah i mean wow i mean so much there's so much there. I mean, I think I'm also just reminded of Mike from Twin Peaks, who's like, you know, I, he got a tattoo, but what, you know, when he was working with the evil one, Bob, but when he saw God, it took the whole arm off, you know, um, that the spiritual world is this way. The spiritual world shows you love is by getting you, to do what you're meant to do, to do the task that's in your destiny related to your karma. And that is yeah. love, but it often feels like pain. And it often even comes as something that can be disabling, you know, in a certain way. And so when someone's touched by that, you know, presence and then walks with a limp, you know, I'm thinking your version of that really is like you and I sitting at your table and in London and you just being like, I cannot write this fucking album and I don't know what I'm going to do. And you went through that for a long time. 
And yes, that man. was actually the love of the spiritual world. And it doesn't feel like that when you're in it because it's so painful, but that the, the demand is stay with it, stay with it. And that's the wrestling with the angel, keep wrestling. And then of course, you know, it's the name of your record, but it's like wrestling with the angel because you, the, the only other option is letting go. And like, really you would, you would stop touching the angel. You would stop being in contact with it just to get on with your life, just to stop wrestling. You know, it's just not even an option. Yeah. It's so it's so weird. Like it's just writing music. It's nothing. It's nothing that big, you know. And like I know it sounds fucking really wanky to tr- wanky to try and 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 elevate it to this kind of like thus this intense spiritual import, right? But for me, it is because the only thing I really know how to do, and it's my version of it's my version of fucking you know fucking digging tunnels or you know fucking working out in the field. This is my version of, and it is difficult. And I think when we had those conversations, there were so many other elements in my life that felt like that was stopping me. A fear of like not being accepted, the biggest one. Fear of like what, what some fucking dipshit online has their opinion of it, or what what a critic would say that, or like you know what people in my life would say and how they would feel about not only me trying to connect with my dad and do it in this very very like very very dense, bold, and non trendy, non cool way. Like, it's not a low-stakes indie rock album with just, like, jangling guitars and a synth in the background. It's not that. It's in 67 minutes and it's dense and it's filled with just stuff upon thing upon thing upon thing. It was not only that. It was like, how do I – it's about connecting my culture, a culture I didn't even rec- – like, I didn't know a culture that I hadn't really connected with, uh, you know, about family, about family I didn't know who didn't even know I was fucking alive or that I existed. So much of that was like, how do I tell this story in a way that is not only like high quality, quote unquote, but also just true in a way that I would tell it. How do I tell it? You know, the way that's relevant and like important to me. You know, how do I? How do I? And also, how do I talk to the ghost of my father and feel worthy to stand in that presence of that? Gentlemen. Yeah, I was I was wondering actually when you were talking about Achilles before and now with what you're saying, like, do you know? I, I'm I know nothing about this at all, so I don't mean to make you a Samoan representative, but do you know about like st- stories? I don't like the word myths, but like spiritual stories and that. Yeah, I do. Yeah, and I and I was thinking like when you're talking about Achilles, I was like maybe that's actually part of it too, is that it's drawing from the wrong you know uh, mythos, um, and that in some ways it actually feels too universalized, too depersonalized to actually really touch you know what is humming in your own cells in your own uh, life. Yeah, it, it's as I I've never even thought about that. I like searching for a mythology that made sense outside of the Christian Jewish thing that I grew up with, you know, was um, stumbling across, I guess, what was my destiny in the end, you know, to find my dad's family, to find this this 6,000-year-old ancient tradition, you know. Um, it was confronting because who the fuck am I? But also, like, I'm me, I'm Dave. My father, my father was... The, the the oldest son in a line of highborn chiefs in a village in Samoa, like my last name is Leo Pepe. Like no cunt can tell me 
that I don't have a right to talk about or explore this. And if they do, they can fuck off and die. Like, that was the way I had to like deal with it because like, I spent my whole life feeling like a fucking imposter, you know. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people in their community accepted me, like loads, especially at church, man. Like loads of people in church and loads of people in school and like the you know the rough areas that I I I was familiar with as a kid, like. I didn't have a problem necessarily feeling accepted by some people, but on a grand scale, you know, who the fuck am I? And I just had to shrug my shoulders and say, oh, no one has any right to question my place in it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's this, it was this intense process for me to feel like I was allowed to do it. And then as I started making the album and connecting with people in our community, right, connecting with people who knew the stories, who knew, who knew like the genealogies, who understood, you know, their own place and them giving me like, you know, like not credibility because that's fucking stupid, but them giving me like, I guess, a blessing or trying to understand where I come from and, and, and giving me a path to take and endorsing what I was doing. Like countless fucking people who were, who were important in our community. That was like, I guess there's a bit of an appeal to authority, but it felt like I was on the right track and that's kind of how I, started to feel more okay and accepted and embraced in the, in, in the project. And I think for me, like, that's probably like not an interesting answer, but in, in, in Pacifica culture, Pacifica multiculture, what I've come to understand is that the community's opinion is often very important. And, and bar like individuals in the community, like the, the, as a whole, like their endorsement and their embracing of what art you're making is as important as anything because uh, a part of what I did, I suppose, is is preserving documents of our history, documents of our music. Um, but more than that, like, I think, I think for me, like, the mythology thing, there was something about meeting my, I told you this, there's something about meeting my brothers and talking with them and seeing their their huge bodies and their darkness and their hands that look like my father's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That sort of it kind of like weirdly cradled me and and I didn't feel like lost and I didn't feel like I was some fucking outsider. Mm-hmm. And I didn't feel like any cunt could tell me what I was allowed to say and what I wasn't allowed to say. Mm-hmm. And I felt like all the all the anxieties and words and misses of people who were just you know, have resentments towards me for no other fucking reason within the community. I've dissipated and I was left to be embraced by my family who had longed for longed to meet me. And I was embraced by, you know, I always reference Tangaloa, the god of the sea. And he's called um Tangaroa in um in, you know, Te Reo Māori. I felt embraced by this big god. You know, and that was really, really nice. Really nice. Maybe that's, uh, that's, that's, I mean, yeah. yeah, that's such a beautiful way to say it because, you know, I feel in some ways like a, quite a deep resentment towards the idea of representation and certain ways that identity politics are talked about and all that. And yet I feel if I meet a Syrian person, <laughs> I'm like, uh, Hey, cuz, you know, like I feel it, but what, what maybe a way I can relate to it a bit more or, or try to understand how that is, or, or even if like, if I hear about a Syrian 
writer, much less if there's a Syrian Irish writer, I'm like, hell, you know, like, <laughs> you know, they're just, there really aren't that many, but like, but like, you know, my friend, uh, Drew from who lives in Belfast is Irish and Lebanese. And I just like, like, it's just immediate, like magnetism, you know, with this guy. Not, yeah. yeah. Not just cause he's like insanely handsome, like all this. <laughs> Irish uh, Arab people are, but, um, <laughs> but I think, but I think talking about it as being connected in spirit, like literally in spirit, in that being that, you know, there's like a being that is communicating or embracing us, you know, that, that makes more sense to me than talking about it as representation, you know, or, um, you know, even maybe talking about it in a sort of cultural or political way, because obviously there are lots of Syrian people who are, I think are total assholes, you know, and <laughs> just like crazy, you know? And so I, I think, um, but, but talking about um, us being sort of placed within a, a spiritual connection in that way, I think is really lovely. It's like, um, for me, it was like hearing any Pacific Islander or Maori person, do well or make something in the world gives me like I don't know. Yeah, I I totally get it's it. Not, it's not about this plastic fucking. It's not about this plastic and and very um, commercially oriented version of representation that's only there to generate capital for white masters or anything. Like mm. a lot of that stuff, I can kind of take or leave because it's not really what's interesting to me. Because not all representation is good, um, and right. not everything good has to be. 100% about representation. Like, we still need to have, like, space for the fact that people are people. We're all mm-hmm. human beings and we're stuck in a leaky boat. Um, and that's just the way that I look at art, you know. But it was yeah. just nice because, like, there's there's so many things that I thought were really beautiful. Um, living documents of of Pacifica life. Um, and it's we only ever, we only used Polynesian stuff. We didn't we didn't get to use any like we didn't use any Micronesian or Melanesian stuff purely because like like I just didn't delve that far into any like anything that was like Solomon Islander or or maybe it did I can't remember. Um, but whenever I see or hear somebody in our community, for lack of a better word, who's doing something that they love, that's that people are enjoying that says something beautiful or great or says something harsh or miserable, I get excited because we should all be stoked for each other. And when, <laughs> if there's like, like, we should be like, you know, I should, I should, I should want more art in the world, you know? And it's a weird thing. Like, I'm not in competition with anyone, but, but the man I look, look, the man whose reflection comes back at me, right? I'm not in, I'm not in competition with my ancestors. I'm not in competition with, you know, it's, it's just me that I have to deal with at the end of the day. And, like, I feel like a lot of representation comes down to, like, territory and this is my thing, your thing. And, you know, it's just that's all fucking, that's all fucking egomaniacal, narcissistic bullshit funded primarily by, like, a lack of ego death or something. For me, it's all about I just wanted to say my piece. And more than that, man, it was about, like, how do I how, – how, like, I talked about talking to my father. How do I speak to him in a way that he would understand with a language that he understands, you know, with something that was native to him? And and when when he was dying, we sung him hymns from the islands, you know. we pl- I played Samoan music and, you know. Um, 
you know, we th- there was this that was what he connected with. It was the true self that he had shunned away that he fucking hid that made him light up. So I thought, yeah, why not use that language and commemorate him using that thing? And it also made me really fucking happy, man. Like to hear this music play back to me when we recorded the cunt, like. I was just overwhelmed, man. It fucking it made you remember how how good I felt when I when I just was so meaningful, and I loved it. And fuck anybody else, man. That that thing was meaningful to me. I made the document for my father. I made this monument to my dad that I was finally proud of. And you know what? Like, like my sister, my sister, like who I'm sure she was fucking dreading what was going to come out. She fucking loved it. You know, my brothers. Mm. They loved it. My family loved it. Every fucking Polynesian or Melanesian I meet is is thankful for it, you know. And here I was, fucking worried. Oh yeah, you're ki- you're kicking yourself constantly. Yeah, man. And then now, like, what do I have to like? People who matter fucking like it, and that, <laughs> that, you know, that that's cool, you know. So yeah, anyway, that's yeah. No, I it's it's interesting because I you know the theme song of the show. It's funny, like I <clears throat> I wrote it. Obviously, I'm not comparing my theme song to your musical career, but my, you know, one for in the music, you know, I, co- I co-wrote the theme song with my friend Jeb Havens. And, you know, basically I was like, oh, yeah, I want it to sound like a Sleigh Bell song. And we put like a sample from a Brainiac album in it. And I told, um, and then like when I met Stephen Malcolmus, he's like, oh, yeah, I love that. It's like, it's got that like Arab Arabic music sound. And I was like, what? And then I listened to it and I was like, holy shit, it does. And so then I had my friend Ben Chasney from Six Organs of Admittance recompose and sort of co-write, uh, co-create this, the new version of the theme with me to sound like, you know, much more Arabic. And I was thinking about how, you know, that kind of stuff finds its way to where it's meant to go, like certain sounds, certain instruments, um, they find their way. And I was thinking then also just about that PJ Harvey movie. Um, I think it's called a dog called money, which is about her. Recording. Yeah, it's a, the hope demolition six, project. the hope six demolition project. Yeah. yeah. And it's such a, it's such a, I love that record and I love that movie. And people, some people were like, Oh, this is cultural appropriation. She just went to these places and took their music and their instruments. And I just thought, no, like that, the, I mean, it, it's just such a completely secularized to the point of dead consumerist materialism view of what was happening, which was like, you know, these sounds found her and worked their way through her in this really beautiful way. And you can just, you can tell the difference when someone loves it. Yes, you can make an intellectualized critique about who owns what, but like, it's not, it's not property. I think nowadays, I think people who, people who are, trying to think clearly and but i think people are starting to realize that there are versions of appropriation or whatever the fuck that are actually respectful and they're actually considered and 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 empowering and good and there are versions that aren't so good and i think learning how to make those nuanced distinctions is the reason why art and fucking politics you know me fucking couldn't give a shit you know but politics can move forward in a way that is actually beneficial for people and not just the loose ragtag of assholes who sit around with nothing but resentment and want to destroy things because that's the only way they can, you know, acquire social capital. 
Yeah, and isn't, isn't that critique um, actually called like more exemplary of a cultural appropriation? Well, it, it's never about the thing that they say it's about. It's never because they care about the fucking cultures. <laughs> right. It's like none of these people who have ever spent time in a working class neighborhood. Like, honest, honest to fucking God, like, yeah. It, it just has this, it has the cadence of something that's always, like I said, born out of resentment and not about something that's real and about helping people. And for yeah. me, look, I don't pay attention to it anymore. And like I said, there are kinds of appropriation that are fucked. Like, not, we're not saying, I'm not saying that, but, you know, not everything has to be viewed through this really, really, like, in a lot of ways, vapid intellectual critique. And I only say that, I only say that because I, it's irresponsible to keep leveling at stuff that could be potentially really great and really important and fantastic you know and yeah. it's not I'm not saying we shouldn't be vigilant about things that you know that could be like actually really exploitative and shitty but that's not everything and i don't want to live in a world where we just level this these random fucking these random fucking criticisms at things just because they service us on a, on a social level i think that's really fucking shitty and irresponsible because yeah time, time, you talk about the passage of time like I, I hope we look back at some of the stuff that we obsessed over now and just regret it because we've obsessed over too much random shit that isn't that important and isn't that helpful. And I feel like, um, yeah, I feel like at least at least with what I've done, like anyone anyone who levels any accusations of cultural appropriation against me for using stuff for my own culture is a fucking lot. <laughs> but yeah, but I think I think in general, generally speaking, like there are there are respectful ways to do it and. I think we like for me for me at least I've a lot of compassion for people in general when it comes to like any of this stuff. I, I try to have yeah, just because something exists and make inherent exists that doesn't meet the current cultural standard doesn't make it harmful. Doesn't make it means it's inherently harmful. And I don't like this. I don't like this willy nilly usage of the word harm, especially when it comes to things like like it's like we're like Schrodinger savages or something. Like we're both noble people who are who are fighting colonialism and 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 um. And you know, resisting oppression, but also just like, but on that, but also sensitive little babies who can't fucking take it if a white person, you know, right? It's sort yeah. of this weird thing for me. Like, I don't, I don't love this idea. There's no consistency in it. It's just, it just, it's, it's so contingent on the ebbs and flows of fucking whatever hot button issue people are writing takes about. And I try not to. That's why I don't really buy into it and don't really talk much about it because, on one hand, I don't really fucking know. It's, it's, it's not. Like I'm not a working class kid anymore, so it's for me. It's like I I don't know what what's happening on the streets these days because that's 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 twenty years, fifteen years ago. But also, like I don't want to make past judgments that I'll regret in fucking five, ten years when the narratives eventually change to something else. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? There's there's things that are important to me, like the prison system. You know that that I'll always hate that. There's other things I'm just like, oh, come on. You know, I liked that fucking Pedro Harvey album too. I thought it was really cool. Um, and that's kind of where it stays for me. Like I don't have any strong opinions about it because what's the point for me personally? Do you, um, do you find that your audience is, <laughs> do you find that your audience is attuned to any of that sentiment? Why I'm bringing it up is, you know, I'm thinking about the <laughs> the time you were on stage and the was oh, so, yeah. in the <laughs> the audience and you said, "No, nah, I'm an anarchist." You know, when you found out he was like, <laughs> in the audience, you're like, "Well, I'm an anarchist." And I was thinking about um, 
you know, how important it is to, it's, it's not important to um, control your audience or make sure your music doesn't reach certain people or whatever, but just to make sure that the people out there are kind of uh, humming with at least some sort of similar frequency as each other. Like, why am I, why am I saying this? Like, I mean, there's just lots of examples. One is like going, you know, one of the first concerts I ever went to was to see Faith No More play with Helmet and, you know, Mike Patton's on the stage. He's like, are there any skinheads in the audience? He's like, what the fuck are you? Fuck, get the fuck out of here. You know, like telling them, you know, to sleep because I grew up where there are lots of neo-Nazis or like thinking about, you know, how powerful it would be or would have been if over the years you know, like Joe Rogan, who seems to have like no regard for his audience really would have just been like, look, you guys like, like fuck off. If you're listening to the show and you think this fuck off instead of constantly doing damage control again and again and again for people and be like, well, I'm just asking the questions. Right. It's like, you have a big audience. And so you made this <laughs> statement while like a big governmental figure is in the audience. You're like, yeah, well, we're anarchists. And I'm just wondering <laughs> if, you know, and and you also used to have like, and maybe you still do have this like, you know, either X or still present like, like it is an evangelical Christian audience, you know, um, and so I'm just wondering if over time with the growth of your audience, because I for the first time I saw you, what was like 50 people there or something like that, you know, like ten years ago to to what it is now, like has brought a sense of that responsibility um, or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I think for me, we shouldn't trust anyone in media to give us our fucking ideologies. That's um, very Zizekian opinion. Um, but I think my, like for me, our music's always been about <laughs> sort of values based rather than specifically ideological. Like Atlas Round is a, is just a, is a clear, rejection of objectivism you know um and the kind of the kind of quote-unquote libertarianism um that i don't find necessarily palatable or helpful for me or humankind um but if libertarians who love ayn rand want to listen to that shit fucking you're welcome for me i don't have these typifications because i don't believe that i have any right to govern how people feel or think like i generally don't it's not it's not only my not only not my problem, it's not my responsibility. My responsibility, as far as I'm concerned as an artist, is to try and communicate my core values and things that matter to me. Say sorry to each other, forgive each other, respect each other, do good to each other, look after each other, fuck the prison system. These are the things that actually matter to me and they, they're communicated, you know, I suppose on stage by me in fucking the horrible, unfunny banter that I give and also subliminally and really plainly in the music, like, I do criticize the state in Angel Real Time. I say in a uh, hand of God, the state's lying. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? uh, like, but those are just values to me, whether or not people adopt them. Yeah, let me just clarify. So, because I. Sorry, but uh, we answer. Like, I'm on board with everything you're saying, yeah. of course. But, um, and I understand how, like, in the way you're talking about, well, yeah, my values are just going to show up. It's not like I set out to write these songs yeah, to right. like change people's minds. But I'm actually the reason why I reference the anarchism because you do say these things on stage. So it's yeah. not just it's not just the record that's out there. The concerts and your own presence are out there, and then that kind of interaction with people 
that are there, you know, like remember the thing when, um, where like Kurt Cobain, like had found out that these guys had like turned Polly into like a sort of rape anthem or whatever, where like, and, and he would bring it up at the concerts and he was like, if you're, if that's you like fuck off, you know? So I'm just, I guess it's more of a, it's less a question about the music and how the music reaches people, because of course it is for everyone at a certain point when it leaves and goes out and just becomes, you know, songs that are available to people, but like your relationship to audience as the person on stage now doing these really big events, you know, um, you know, some in, in Australia, you know, immense, you know, events. One thing that I'm really wary of around that particular thing is whether or not. <laughs> so me saying, if you, if you're, if you're an anti-Semite, like if I, if I say, fuck you, don't want to listen to my music nowadays, with our current, with the current way we respond to criticism as a culture, that ain't gonna mean anything because they're just gonna do it to spite me. It's like when fucking, you know, like, <laughs> right. you know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't, right. it doesn't happen. It, like, Dave Leo Pepe parody account. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Like, it just doesn't really, it doesn't really work. And um, one of the things I'm really worried about is that when you do that, you, you lose it. Not, not for it. Like, fucking, of course, fuck anti Semite. Like, of course, fuck those cunts. Like, <laughs> you, know, can be, you know, fuck people who, who hate, you know, who hate people because they're different or hate people because they're women or this and like, that's stupid as fuck. But it's more about like, I think for me, I am worried about losing an opportunity to infect these cunts with like things that are things that make them question their own values that are mm-hmm. values that I find disagreeable, you know. And maybe that's a really untrendy way to answer because the, the way we're supposed to do things now, we're supposed to fucking, you know, we're supposed to target. We're supposed to paint a target on people as undesirable, and then let them know that mm-hmm. at, at hominem and ad nauseum for the rest of their life. I just not really like that, and the expectation that I should participate in any kind of process that prohibits people arbitrarily. Like I said, hey, it won't work. And like people are just going to do it despite me after that. And second of all, like I don't know, it just doesn't doesn't really it's not really the kind of bloke i am i I know that's a stupid thing and you know people are capable of changing and you should change and whatever but doesn't really feel doesn't really feel right to me and i don't quite know why you know to make like the statements i care about is if you if you think the prison system and hurting prisoners and punishing people arbitrarily as and labeling them as undesirable is for you then get the fuck out of mine like i'll say that yeah, this is, that's a value that actually matters. And but in terms of like the prohibitive stuff, I just don't know how it would work. I like because it, it literally doesn't. Especially well, Australia, you know, Australia's like they'll just be like, hey, "Fucking check this cunt out. We're gonna go." Have a fucking- <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like, it just doesn't 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 mean anything there. You know? Well, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I guess it, you know, it's just bringing up uh, like obviously, um, I also agree with that. But the the reason yeah. the reason why is the same reason why I thought it was cool that you said the anarchism thing or like when you were here in Dublin and you were like, <laughs> I forget how it came up. What did you say? Fuck tech companies. But I think I, I forget how you even ended up saying like fuck tech companies or whatever. And then <laughs> three people sort of like nervously like collapsed. But the reason why 
I like all that is again a biblical or spiritual thing. It's powers and principalities. It's not people. Um, not that you know certain people shouldn't be you know held accountable, but even those people are usually in the sway of something. You know, they're much more in the sway of something than you know. They're standing in evil. They're not you know evil themselves. And I think that's that's what I appreciated about. <laughs> some of the things that I've heard you say well, on stage. I, I think the anarchist thing was also just a, on one hand, I knew it would be like a funnier side just to divert the attention, the attention. But I didn't want anyone to get it twisted that I endorsed the idea of fucking a prime minister. You yeah. Know? Um, you know, and because, because the question was, and he was, he's, a, he's honestly a very nice man. I've interacted with him a few times. He's a very, very pleasant man. And I'm sure, I'm sure he's trying his best, you know, um, uh, you know, to do his, like like any elected official, they, they're probably trying their best. You know, doing what they doing what they feel is right. Um, but the question was, oh, what do you think of Albo, Albanese being the audience? And I said, I'm sure, he's a nice man, but I'm an anarchist, and I wanted to emphasize that I I don't take a position on shit like that because not that it's beneath me because I know a lot of people talk about politics, but because like I just don't know, man. I'm not connected to Australia anymore. Like I I I'm not registered to vote there because I don't live there. Like for me. It's it's also about like not dictating to people subliminally and unnecessarily something like when I don't have to. If I do feel like I have to, then fucking hell's yeah, you know, fuck the prison system straight up. <laughs> but um, the tech company thing, man, like I mean, they just they just fucking blowhards, man. The cunts who start those things, you know, not all of them. Some of them are fine, and you know, and like you said about standing and evil. I just, I look. I know it's untrendy and really unfashionable and highly cancelable and shit. But I just can't believe that people are fucking. I think all people are scumbags generally. So therefore, if all people are scumbags, no one's really evil. I have the lowest fucking standards possible. So then, no one fucking disappoints me. I, the only way we can go is up from here. Do you know what I mean? And I like, like thinking that we're capable of some higher fucking. No, people are selfish assholes. Even the ones who are super righteous and have all the right opinions are fucking probably self-righteous assholes. Yeah, and. For me, I I don't want to get stuck in a in a melange in a melange of like of miseries, um, designating certain people as good or bad. It doesn't work because my father, like the object of my my admiration, my whole life was a mix of good and bad. He did some fucking shitty things, man. Yeah. Mean, but he's also the most magical, wonderful human being. People are capable of both dark and light, and. The, one of the reasons why gang abuse exists to me is because I'm like that. I'm a cunt and I'm a bad dude, but I'm also sort of fine. It's also, you know, like yeah. yeah. I think I think, you know, maybe the way I would say it rather than people are stupid scumbags, um, is that <laughs> <laughs> is that, you know, every everybody's innocent, you know. Um, and I think that's and and also one of the moments that was most heartening to me on this show was when I was talking with um, Freya Rasheen, who wrote this book called Who Is Wellness For? And she was just saying, you know, I have to, um, which is a great, it's a great takedown of not just the wellness industry, but sort of wellness mindset. And she was just like, look, I have to think about not just first of all, I have to think about the ways I've been harmed because that's really important and think about how that informs my life. But I also have to think about how I've harmed people, 
you know, I have to think about how I've harmed other people. And I just remember thinking, cause she's, she's young and she's just brilliant. Like fucking thank God. Like that is the only way you can get to anything even like restorative justice. And if people are actually ready for that, like to look at how they've harmed people, like that's really important. And it was something that, you know, when I was, when I did the tour for the Hawk Mountain hardcover, it was like, you know, I, I'd always said, you know, I always, I want people to think, you know, keep switching their affinities for which character that I identify with the most because right. the I, bully or the, or the, or the, the bully or the bullied kit, because it's like, I want to make sure no one is left uh, unaccountable and also no one is left unforgiven because you need both those things. And, I, and so I, yeah, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you. More, although maybe I wouldn't say stupid scumbags, but <laughs> <laughs> only to some I just, people. I just, I just have this like, I wanted, I want, I think I wanted the album to feel like compassion for my father because mm. Rob, he robbed me and my sister of our brothers and our family, and he stole our culture from us. You know, he didn't pass down the language, which I'm starting to learn now. Hmm. I wanted I wanted to demonstrate a compassion for him, and I don't love this idea that somehow demonstrating compassion for people who do bad or wrong is 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 um, is evil. I like compassion for all for me, and you know I'm not saying my dad was evil. Fucking, you know, like um, he's a mix of both, like all of us are. But implicitly, my my father was a wonderful, caring father who thought he was doing his best by us, and who lived with a lot of shame. And um, and by freeing him and talking about it, like openly and candidly, I feel like in this profoundly spiritual way, there it is giving rest to his soul, mm-hmm. and it is light and flight to the truth, which is a higher truth that you know, finding belonging and finding a place in the world and a place in the universe to exist mm-hmm. while we have a time on Earth in a physical body is really really beautiful and really important. And part of that process for me is compassion and forgiveness, compassion and forgiveness. And I don't have a lot of compassion for people or forgiveness a lot of the time, man. I'm a prick a lot of the time to people I feel have hurt me. Do you know what I mean? Like I'm not fucking, I'm not amazing with shit like that, you know? And for me, I I guess a lot of it's governed by my faith, you know, like having like in many ways a traditional Christian upbringing with like the Jewish stuff on my mum's side, but also the son. A lot of it, it probably is my faith and dictates, like, literally, if Jesus was fucking nice to cunts and forgave people for, like, murdering him and shit, then mm-hmm. maybe, like, I can probably do that. But it's also been married to the person I'm married to who is compassionate and forgiving always. To, I, I, it's something that I want to learn how to do, and I, I feel like mm-hmm. um, that's, at the, that's at the essence of, of why anyone in this band makes the music is because we have this focus on these things. You know, and forgiveness is a unifying prospect. You know, it's not something that is only local or native to one culture or to one people group or to one, you know, or to the Christians or to Muslims or to fucking Jews or Zoroastrians or to fucking, you know, to fucking shell and monks. It's something that is it's something that is a universal precept and and it's the fabric of God, you know. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just opening up something for me 
about some of the discussions we had, which you've you've touched on earlier in this episode about being misunderstood, being disliked, being judged. Um, let me say my experience a little bit first, where you know if I go online and I see people just really berating each other and really just being cruel to each other. I always, I actually experience that as pain, you know? So I, I, I try just not to look anymore, but every once in a while I do just to re-experience the pain and maybe wrestle with that angel a bit, not the pain of the person who's being bullied, but I actually feel like that the person acting out of the sort of compulsive, you know, anger and snark is, I, I experience what they're going through, you know, I experience their pain in a way, not because I sympathize with them more, but I experience something there. And so I was thinking when you're saying, when, oh, like I actually, you know, have a hard time having compassion for people or whatever. And then also you feel this kind of fear of being misunderstood, anxiety about being misunderstood and judged. It's like, rather than saying, oh, I judge people harshly, so I'm afraid they're judging me harshly, I might identify a piece in there where you're saying, I can actually feel that person's lack of freedom. Yeah. Like the fact that they're not free. And that's that fear of my own lack of freedom, of my own contracted being, the ways in which I'm not in touch with God, that whose who's, who's garment is made out of forgiveness, because forgiveness is a real, you know, expression of freedom. Um, I, I really hear that in what you're saying. It's weird because, like, I I think um, I think one of the reasons why my wife likes me, or maybe why you like me, or people like me in my life, is because I'm not particularly judgmental. On the surface, like I don't, I don't have those necessarily those social impulses to be a cunt about things like that. But I know that inside they exist, and my fight in life is to just not allow those things to overwhelm my person and to cloud. Yeah, like you said, like I generally, I think I identify with judgy assholes because I'm afraid that deep down my rigid Christian upbringing, you know, my being like the nerdy dude in school, or whatever, comes out in this really vile. Um, I guess vile, like, um, you know, very tangible way. And I think, yeah, I think you're right. I, I just don't. I understand why people get pissed off at shit online or whatever. I just don't want to. I don't want to understand it anymore. I want to find it confusing. Why would you do that? You know. Mm-hmm. And my life is about. My life is about trying to become dumber now. Trying to become less informed as to why people could feel that way about each other, mm-hmm. and trying to deprogram myself from this weird social state where the default is suspicion and hatred, and you know, I feel that towards the state and against against unnecessary hierarchies and authorities that that, that shouldn't have any presence in my life or our lives. I shouldn't have that towards individuals and people. And I don't know if I think I think you know that's why I, for me to say like I'm an anarchist or whatever. Um, in front of the Prime Minister, who, like I said, is a nice man. It's more about stating claim that, like, if there is any ideological framework that I follow, it's that one. You know, and, like, you know, maybe it's because I didn't want to be misunderstood as somehow supporting a political party. You know, I've got, I've got a lot of time for anybody. <laughs> you know what I mean? I do. Yeah. Like, I'm an Indigenous Jew and fucking 
If any of you want to sit down and have a conversation with me, fuck it. All right. I got time for people, man, and that that's not trendy. That's not cool. But I, I can't I can't necessarily help that impulse in me because that's you know you know I want to feel, like I think for me I dream of people being safe in my presence to be who they are because I want to feel safe in people's presence to be who I am, gentlemen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I want I, my version of that is I want people to feel like there's always an option for them to direct things. So rather than feeling caught in some sort of compulsion and, and also that everybody has that ability because, you know, so much is so much that is like talked about is like, it's always with a sense of inevitability of crushing passivity. There's so much ability to direct things from moment to moment. And that happens through, a kind of radical connectivity as well. There's um, this guy, Peter Dunov, who I love. He, he's a Bulgarian occultist, Christian, but he started this group, which is unfortunately called the White Brotherhood. But um, <laughs> <laughs> it's not met in that way. And in fact, he, you know, stopped, uh, uh, stopped Jews, Jewish people from being sent to concentration camps in Bulgaria during the Second World War. But he, he said, um, we refer to the law of love as a link between souls. The law of love demands mutual aid between human beings. Yeah. Um, mutual aid, you know? I mean, for him to say that, obviously, he's, you know, thinking of Kropotkin as well, probably yeah. at that time. But, like, you know, to talk about that in a spiritual sense, you know, in the way in which we're connected. I want to shift gears back to music more directly and just ask a very basic question, which is like, why do some things find their ways into songs and other things not? And I, I don't, I mean, I can say that for you specifically, and we can talk about specific songs, but I mean, sort of more generally too, like, how is it that, you know, whatever arrives to you as the musician, as the songwriter, and you're like, that goes in versus that doesn't get to go in or, or probably actually something doesn't even occur to you. Like things that don't go in might not even occur to you as like, no, I'm not going to write a song about that, you know, but um, how something shows up and then you're like, that has to belong in music. Oh man. Um, I mean, for me, I use, what would I put in a movie? You know, cause cinema, cinema, um, my first loves is cinema and sport. You know, they weren't music. You know, what would I put in a movie? What, what would, what's the romantic image? What's your romantic idea? Mm-hmm. What is, what is compelling? What is spiritual? What is beautiful and boring and benign? What, what gives a sense of place and time? What gives a sense of rhythm? Mm-hmm. How, will I, how will I make a viewer feel connected to this? What does it sound like? What does it feel like? What does it smell like? What is something familiar to them? You know, and I, for me, I use a lot of cinema as a thing, and I use sport. And you and I have fucking funny conversations about sport, but there is no greater drama than what happens on a football field. It is, it is improv. It is, it is unique to its time and place, and it's historical. Um, all sport is measured in history. You know, it's all measured in history and places and dates and certain certain players and certain performers and certain human beings who did something in a split second in a matter of inches that meant the difference between winning and losing, the difference between um, 
relegation from a league or staying in the league, they meant the difference between them. They meant something to the people in which that sports team, you know, where that sports team exists. Um, and those are the images that are all, always romantic images. It's great drama and it's, you know, those are me personal, but I think what makes in the songs are things that we often find. I, I like the idea of making small things really fucking big, like, you know, the, the curvature on the lamp in the bedroom that like, refracts light it looks nice. You put that in the song and making big things small. My father died and that was that. I think those are the things that for me, I can't speak because songwriting is so big. For me, those are the things that that I think about when I put in, like when I put anything into a song. How can I make the banal enormous and the enormous banal? How can I make it relatable to someone's experience, you know, what they can see and what they can hear? You know? Yeah. But, I mean, the sport thing's really interesting because it's like, look, it, it, yeah, we've had funny conversations about sports, but, um, but one of the things that I can appreciate about it is that, you know, when people are playing any game or match, like what people, the, what the, what the audience um, the fans are deeply in touch with is the kind of <laughs> make it very booky, the sort of Borgesian <laughs> garden of forking paths where yeah. the, the multiple universes are completely present because every, every single choice which is made in that split second unfolds a, a, a different possible universe, you yeah. know, cause you can constantly, and that's what the playback is about and everything. Yeah. It's like, Oh, if you just would have done this, then the universe would have went this way. It would have went this way. So it's that people are looking into multiple universes when they watch a, a match, um, yeah. which is, you know, and people like different versions of that. If, if someone wants a slow version of that, they'll watch baseball. You know, if they want a really quick version of it, they'll watch basketball or, or football, whereas my American um, listeners will know as soccer, but um, I think uh, I think that so I think that that's really like fascinating that you would bring that in because that's in process for you. Like when you like the finished song is the finished song. Like the finished song is the end of the universe of the possibilities or the forking paths of that song, but you get to engage in it in its many sort of variations. So what ends it? Like what ends the universe of each song for you when you're like, it's done. When I hear it and all the poetry makes sense in my fucking soul or something, it's just weird. I've said what was not, not just necessary. I hate middle-class ideal that you should only use restraint and you should only put what's necessary in a song. It's for fucking bozos. You know, there's no fucking way that I'm just going to put what's necessary because what is beautiful is often things that are unnecessary. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, it, it's what feels like it's complete. It's what, I mean, that's, that's, that's like a weird reflexive kind of answer, but it's this sense. It's, it's a sense inside me that like the poetry is there. Like there is a, there's a contour that is both referencing itself, but also other things in the body of work. Do you know what I mean? Um, and I think for me, like you talk about the, the, the land of infinite possibilities. Um, like Jorge Luis Borges, like, we tried to ask his um, estates if we can use a sample um, of one of his lectures in um, in uh, the Angel Bait Avenue. And in lieu of that, we just wrote our own 
They said no to you. Uh, well, they don't. They they don't let um, people use his voice and likeness in media, which I do understand. Um, you know, but we just use some other Argentinian shit. You know, <laughs> we, I, I just referenced Argentinian, um, you know, football players, Maradona mm. and, uh, and Batistuta. Yeah. But you talk about so I just so I just want to go back. To, I know we're running time, but the idea of like it's a game of inches, and like the, in the middle of um at the end of uh, any given Sunday, the great Oliver Stone film about about um about American football, Al Pacino is talking about. Um, you know, what are you, what are you willing to do for that inch? Are you willing to die for that inch? Because it means the difference between winning and losing, between living and dying, all this kind of big fucking macho talk. But it's not just it's not just the difference between life and death or whatever. It's every every liminal possibility between that. And the way I the way I know that I can close that off is if I know like I know where the end is, is um if I die. Is this song done? Mm. Am I happy with it? If 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 someone came in the bedroom or the living room, put a gun in my head, or I can't, you want to die today? If I'm all right with leaving the song as it is, <laughs> uh, and if it's that's not, why you I'm, hire producers who are willing to kill you. <laughs> precisely, and it's like you know, like there's some songs that on Go Father and Lightness that needed an edit, um, but. I think I realized, you know, it, it's it's some it's something liminal for me. It's this weird feeling of knowing that I, I'm happy and I'm okay if if people hear this version of and on Angel Real Time there wasn't a single thing that I let out into the world that I was like, oh fuck. Don't know about that. The closest one is Returner, but Returner's hard for me because it's so different to everything else I've ever done. It's like I always say it's like HMS Pinafore and NASA trip. Do you know what I mean? It has um but yeah, I think that's where I know when it's ended. And like I said, I, I need to I need to stress that this is the most important thing. Like just because something is necessary doesn't make it means complete. Just because there's all the necessary elements. Like there's necessary things in a painting of you know a house, but where's where's the tree? Where's the what colours the grass? Where's the sky look like? You know. There's necessary like cook thief his wife and her lover is the greatest the only <laughs> I've seen other Greenaway films, but he's hard to come by. That movie's not. There's nothing about the movies that can even remotely necessary. It's the most excessive. It's the most fucking disturbing, excessive, and transgressive piece of art, man. There's nothing necessary for me. I need to, you know, what's the thing that makes it feel the most beautiful, the most me, the most human? Am I willing? If I if I don't live tomorrow, am I okay? If this is my last thing. Yeah, that's how yeah. I do it. Pretentious, but that's how I do it. Well, listen. I'll just say that I know in this conversation, if someone shot me right now, I'd be happy that it was finished. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm having, I'm having a great time. And I mean, I always have a great time talking with you and it's just such a pleasure to have you back on the show. Dave Leo Pepe. Thank you. I love you. Thanks, man. Love you too. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye now. (laughs) 